Hello everyone. As we announced earlier this week, we are expanding our podcast and starting today, we're going to be doing bi-monthly episodes only in English. We've met lots of people over the years and we realized we can't really talk to them in Macedonian. Uh, so we decided to do it in English for our first uh, special English edition on the pod. We've got a special guest joining us all the way from Thailand. He's a return Peace Corps volunteer from Macedonia, graduate of the University of Virginia, a historian who currently teaches in Suratani, Thailand, and a very good friend of ours, Phil Pinchton. Welcome on the pod, Phil. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, it's a real honor to be the first uh, English-speaking guest. Well, considering how, how many Peace Corps volunteers have turned out over the years here in Macedonia, it's, it's, it's quite natural. So how are, how is life going, Phil? How's life? Um, well, you know, I'm sort of holding my own here. Uh, I'm lucky to be uh, still employed. Um, I teach at an international school um, in Suratani, which is a town in like the south part of Thailand. Um, and we're doing online courses and I'm, you know, I'm trying to do my best with it. It's, it's uh, no one was really kind of prepared for this. So, you know, it's been, um, it's been a struggle. The school year is almost over actually. And um, in um, a few weeks, I'll actually be moving uh, because I uh, got another job at another school in Thailand. So. Oh, nice. Yeah. And do you teach any core subjects or is, what, what exactly are you teaching there? I teach English, math, and science. Um, there's also like social studies, but social studies for grade three is like being a good citizen and, um, you know, things like that. And it's very like American centric and all of my kids in my class are Thai. And so it's not really, it's not really a good uh, curriculum for them. So I kind of weave in my social studies. Yeah, so we met at a youth camp, uh, YMLP, Young Men's Leadership Project. And one of the things I remember specifically about you, and when we were, we were uh, talking with Nicola about this interview, I, I said we got to talk about his footwear in Macedonia. So <laughs> can, you tell us, uh, can you tell us what's that all about? Um, I inherited a pair of cheap Kumanovo um from um uh, my baba she she gave them to me initially for shower shoes but i said i gotta wear these these are so cool and um so i just wore them everywhere um i even brought them to thailand um and then i left them on my front porch and some dogs took them away uh, i was so sad and i when i went back to macedonia i looked all over and I couldn't find a pair. I, I guess the factory's closed or, or something. Um, but I told my baba that the dogs took my cheek Kumanovo and she just shook her head. Um, so, so of course clubs, have, clubs and camps have been a big part of like how, how like all of us met and how we meet other Pisco volunteers and like other Americans. So Steven, you were a programming coordinator for YMLP. Um, mm -hmm. I can't remember which year, sorry. 
but can you can you talk about that uh, that experience a little bit? What's it like being a programming leader in a in a Macedonian context in a in the wonderful Shulabin of Khrushchev? And and also, do you feel like Glow and YMOP do their job as advertised? Yeah. So uh, I was assistant programming coordinator in 2017, and then the lead programming coordinator in 2018. And so as the assistant, I was obviously learning from the lead programming coordinator, um, kind of what to be, what's going to be expected of me doing it the following year. Um, but I was primarily responsible for designing and implementing the leadership track, because you have the core tracks, uh, leadership, civic engagement, civic responsibility, and, and environmentalism. And so I was working with a Macedonian counterpart. Um, so in the, in the program, we try to pair every single Peace Corps volunteer with somebody from Macedonian, whether somebody who's Albanian or Macedonian. Um, and we, you know, learn from each other about what leadership is, what we think it is, what we can find out there in, um, you know, the literature about leadership um, and what leadership is like in Macedonia. And so we, we work together to create that, that track that, that then campers will learn about. So I did that my first summer and then my second summer, I was responsible for managing all the facilitating pairs and the electives. And so um, just making sure that there was a, a common theme across uh, the different tracks, as well as making sure that um, other things like the values of camp, things like caring and, um, oh gosh, it's been a while. What were some of the other values? Uh, love. Honesty, honesty, right, yeah. creativity, like, passion. So making sure those sorts of things are, are incorporated into, into the programming um, and just being responsible for the schedule. Um, not only the schedule that's planned, but the schedule that has to happen because there's rain or, you know, we can't drink the water. And so we have to figure out how we're going to get you know, <laughs> people water um, at last minute and things like that. But thankfully, uh, you know, I'm not the only person who's running camp. Um, there's other Peace Corps volunteers who are part of the leadership board um, and other uh, Macedonians, other people from Macedonia um, doing that as well. And so uh, like logistics is making sure that equipment's there and the campsites are prepared and things like that. And so um, even though I had a lot of responsibility, I also had a lot of help. And so I think that the implementation of the camp definitely met, you know, the goals of what camp were. And that was to promote English speaking um, because it was a common language we could all speak. Uh, in a country where there's a lot of different languages that are potentially spoken. Um, we, you know, we're bringing people together from diverse parts of, of Macedonia so they can, with like-minded people, right? They want to be engaged in their communities. They want to do, they want to be part of uh, leadership opportunities. And, uh, and then also just introducing them to new topics that are relevant to, to Macedonia. Environmentalism was something that we promoted heavily because, um, you know, it was an issue in Macedonia. And so it's something we wanted to give skills and knowledge um, to youth to then promote, you know, different attitudes uh, uh, towards towards these issues and, and just to just better their own community. But also it was Americans, it was cool for us to get out there and, you know, experience the outdoors with y'all and, and learn about your culture and and uh, just, you know, make friendships. I mean, two years down the line and we're, we're still in touch. Maybe not as much as I would like, but this is this is cool. So, I, I mean, I mean, it was it was a very timely times to camp and also very quirky one of that. So, yeah, it was fun. Yeah, and and like Stephen, so you were uh, kind of behind the scenes, but also you were part of some like 
the classes and the core curriculum and all that is in there you were you might like correct me if i if i'm wrong you were three times a glow yeah yeah so first you were a camper then a cat and last year you were a media intern so yeah. like my question to you would be you're a camper once what made you come back the next couple of years uh, a very very long list of things but um <laughs> yeah it was very uncommon for me at that age um, to experience, first of all, such an acceptance, but also um, such a spirit between people in, in one place. So I, I learned a lot of stuff and I started giving back to my community the same summer that I came back from camp. So my main thought was um, that I also like these people that leave the camp want to get involved, of course. So yeah, I, I tried my best and then the next summer I was a, a counselor in training because I was still underage. Um, it, yeah, it's, it's basically the, you have this wish to, to also help other people experience what the, the amazing experience that you had. Um, and it's interesting to see the, the camp from different perspectives as well, because it's, a totally different thing when you're a camper and then when you're actually part of the staff. Yeah. And I think that's one cool thing about camp too, is that, I mean, each of you would have been leaders in your community without camp. It was just camp was an opportunity to springboard you into that, you know, community with like-minded people and, and meeting each other. But um, that's, what's cool is like you were first campers and then you moved into, you know, positions yeah. in camp, like helping run camp. Yeah, um, and, exactly. which, which is so important. I mean, because Peace Corps is not always going to be in the countries that they, we serve in. And it's, it's up to, you know, community leaders we, to then continue we, we those programs. Talk about that. No, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, there's been, so graduation. So for example, Bulgaria used to be um, a Peace Corps country. Um, and it, it's no longer for, for various different reasons, but um, there's still programs I'm sure that are going on there um that were at least inspired at first with partnerships between volunteers and and host country nationals so. yeah yeah and it's really good to to see that after being a camper you you actually have the opportunity to to go back and take part of the leadership in a thing that was once just given to you so mm -hmm. yeah that's a really really cool opportunity yeah and, and like so you guys spoke about a little bit about like the leadership aspect of it, the community aspect, and, and just like how important these camps are that, by the way, for those that don't know, are run by YMCA um, in Bitteland. I think now it's in the whole country. So, and with, uh, together with uh, Peace Corps and, and other companies that are helping these camps run every year. Unfortunately, we can't do them this year because of the whole situation, but Hopefully we'll be back next year and then do uh, a few camps in, in the summer. But like, okay, so what's one fun thing that you will take back from camp? I know like for me, the chanting and, and just like sleeping outdoors or the s'mores that we would have almost every night when, when we could, you know, get around the campfire and sing songs together. Like, I know Steven, you probably don't really like this, the, the, the chant that we have for you last the last year at camp there you were but like what's one thing that you will take always like is a, a nice reminder from camp and, and it doesn't have to be like you know just the importance of camps but just the, like something that you'll always remember it mm -hmm. 
I mean, I would honestly have to say, uh, even though, uh, you know, the chants, they were funny. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of energy that's behind them and everything. Uh, th obviously, those kind of experiences and those unique um, experiences are something that I'll always remember. But I th honestly, I, honest I think that it's just getting to know y'all as campers, you know, and, and, and continuing those relationships with campers you hit it off really well with, or maybe campers that were somewhat kind of quiet and you see them throughout the week grow to be a little bit more outspoken. And then they, you know, become a leader of one of the clubs that they go back into in, in their communities. Like just seeing the development of campers, but then also developing relationships with campers um, and, and seeing them grow, you know, going and doing cool things like starting podcasts <laughs> or going to university um, in other countries because that's, you know, what they want to do now and, and just developing as, as, as adults. Um, Y'all were all in high school whenever I first met you and, and now you're doing cool things um, as, as adults. <laughs> Sometimes I still don't feel like an adult and I'm about to turn 29. So. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the most significant things are one that are like um, always there. Like, um, yeah, I've met a bunch of people that I still very, very frequently talk to, like including you guys, of course. So yeah. And just, yeah, like Steven said, people, you really, really hit it off with. So I think that's, yeah, that's one of the top things that stick with me um, also another thing is um, how you find out things about yourself when you go there especially about my organization skills um, but yeah and also highlights doing community work back home I, like I know it's not part of the camp but it's still something that you learn from the camp and then you implement at home and yeah I've had some some really nice times working with the club instruments as well. So, so speaking of speaking of service, uh, service oriented work and like working with clubs. So, so from camp, there, is, there are two things that happen usually afterwards, you know, people come back next year, they join in the staff role, but they also, they also go out in their communities and start, start their own clubs. So the Glow and YMLP clubs. So you've all at some point been members, leaders, and, and mentors of the club. So, uh, so I think we can start with Steven. Like, what was your experience with being a mentor of the Sturmitsa Club? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, for me, my personal leadership philosophy is much more, you know, sit back and, and let the club uh, figure out what they want to do and obviously facilitate that. <laughs> I see some smirks. Um, maybe sometimes a little too hands-off, but uh, as a mentor, you're, you're responsible for making sure that, um, you know, the requirements for clubs are being met um, and that everybody's participating and it's, it's going well, right? Um, but I relied a lot on Georgi and, and Vera to, to get things going and, and the other leaders on the club to do it. And so um, like from coming up with what courses or what, you know, sessions we would facilitate on or, or learn more about, to our service project, it was all decided by them. Um, and I encourage them to participate in the leadership of that because that's the whole point of it, right? Is developing those skills with some scaffolding, you know, somebody there to, to assist with that. And so um, it was cool to be able to do that. I don't, nothing that happened with the club was only because of me. Um, uh, it, if anything, it was less so because of me and much more so because of our leaders. So 
um, that was, it was a really cool opportunity to do and to give back to the community, right? Like people knew me in Strumica as well as the American, but then also as working with um, in the Center for Development, but um, they also knew me, oh, you work with those high school kids who are, you know, are, are doing a clothing drive. <laughs> you were at our school the other day picking up hundreds of bags of clothing. <laughs> so. Yeah, so you mentioned, you mentioned the, the clothing drive, and that was like one of the things that I really wanted to talk about because we set up a we had to think of a project, and someone had this great idea of doing clothing drive, but what happened there? Why, are we, why is it so funny? Uh, <laughs> okay, um, first I would like to point out the challenge that was starting a club in Strumica. Um, it happened... And yeah, in, in 2016, I believe, um, I came back from being a camper and basically me and two other people started the club. Um, and you could see a lot of stuff shift as other people came in and then Georgi came and then Steven came and it started feeling more like a, like a whole and more organized than it was. So I'm, I'm really glad that we took up that challenge to, to give something like that just for me to but yeah the clothing drive is actually my biggest biggest highlight from being a leader of the club <laughs> um yeah we decided to take a huge step with a service project what wait, year wait, was wait, it wait, 2000 wait. for our first one <laughs> yes for our first one <laughs> before you say huge you gotta say that we had no idea how huge it's gonna get yes no but idea. it was it was such a nice surprise though yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was 2018 no 2017 no I think it was 2018 that we did it because I was or was it 2017 I think it was the, the end of 2017 yeah, yeah that's right like yeah. That. yeah so it, it, it was still in the before times <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah we decided to organize a service project to help a school in Novo Selo and we were divided into several parts um, from raising awareness to raising donations and also raising donations by encouraging people to give clothes. So basically we sent out an invitation to every high school and every primary school uh, in Strumica to give what they can and yeah, either people really want to donate or kids from primary schools really listen to their teachers. But uh, yeah, we had a huge, huge, huge amount of clothes, like uh, several times vans coming to pick up the clothes and days and days of sorting the clothes out. Because several thousand individual pieces of donations. Yes, still one of my proudest moments. Points, I remember, pants to jackets. One morning, uh, we were supposed to meet around, I don't know, 10 to 11.30 to pick up the donations from this one primary school. And it's like 8 in the morning and Stephen calls me. He's like, okay, what's happening? We, they have so many donations. They don't know what to do with them. We need to go right now to pick them up. <laughs> so I'm traumatized thinking about this. Yes, like the clothes were in three different locations. Yeah, but like, I think... Teams of people sorting out clothes, crazy. 
yeah, for weeks. Because it took us so like it wasn't just like sorting through them all. It was getting them to a place that we could do sorting, <laughs> and then. I mean, the, the, you mean my apartment? <laughs> exactly. And I think Vera's apartment too. And yes, yeah, yeah. Yes. And after like that, and just, I, and, and, but like one thing that we should mention is like how uh, great of a community that we had at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a lot of work, and it was a lot of work every day for a whole week, pretty much. And, but we had great, uh, great youth that, pick up that challenge even though we were all kind of you know we had no idea what we were doing we had no idea <laughs> how we we're doing it and and it was just all on the fly actually even though we planned for it but some things you can't plan for as Vera mm-hmm. said like those primary kids they do listen to their teachers uh and yeah it was like for me one of the things that like after after all the clubs are doing their service project and they're respectful uh, in the all the um, the places they're from. We all get together in Skopje for a day or two and we present them. and And I think one that presentation and just seeing actually like looking at the pictures and looking at like like just listening to what we have done and like what other clubs have done too. It was a reminder for me, like one of the things that is very mentioned, just why I keep ca- uh, keep coming back to YMLP. It's because I can do something with that, with that experience and that, that knowledge that I learned there and use it in my community. And, and, and just like seeing those kids when we went to give them the, the donations, uh, even though we had so much more to give, give out, they didn't have enough place to put it uh so just like seeing the, the smile on their faces and just like how happy they were that we were there we we had fun with them and it was just like one of those experiences that i'll definitely remember uh, for a long time and now it's on the air it's going to be on the internet soon so it's going to be forever <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah let's let's shift gears a little bit here uh and you mentioned it a little bit when you talked about Krivopalanka and your your uh time there but i want to touch on a little bit more on like anything you did there connected to sports and uh there is even a peace corps uh article uh, that's out there everyone can read it and like go into uh more than what you did there but can you let like can you tell us a little bit more about your experience with sports in Krivopalanka? Sure. So um, the majority of my, my background is, is in sports. Um, I, I played baseball in college. I worked as a, as a scout for a season after grad school. I mean, I've, I've had some experience doing athletic training and, and things of that nature. And what I, what I thought when I got to Peace Corps was that I would leave all of that at home and I'd be learning totally new skills. Um, but what I learned once I got to Kriya Palanka is that um, the skills and experiences that I had were really valuable and could be really impactful. And so when I, when I looked at the needs of, of the community and, and the, as well as the resources, which Peace Corps does a really good job of in training is helping us help our community members. So it's, it's one thing for me to say, 
this is what I've done, this is what your problems are, and this is what we're gonna do. But it's another thing to really analyze, have, have statistics supporting your observations or not supporting them, and to really analyze the needs and resources of your community. So um, what I learned quickly was in Macedonia in general, you have the fourth highest percentage of smokers in the world per capita. So we know that public health and access to health services um, are generally low, especially in Kriopalanka where we have um, a, a pretty old hospital, for lack of a better term, um, and, and people just don't have access to healthcare. And so not only do people not have access to healthcare, but in Kriopalanka specifically, it's the, the least developed region of the country. So we know um, that the, the median income is about $100 a month, and that between 50% and 67% of Macedonians are only able to eat one, one meal a day. So in my mind, developing health and education programs um, throughout my service was really, really important. And so what we were able to do is I was able to, to partner with, um, with three uh, organiza uh, informal organizations, um, sports organizations, and these people really wanted to be, to be coaches and to give kids um, opportunities to, to get healthy, but also to, to get good at their, at their sports. So I partnered with um, the local basketball organization, uh, the local ping pong organization, believe it or not, and um, karate. And so what we ended up doing is, is leading, um, I would lead athletic trainings with the coaches uh, every day, five days a week, um, really for my entire service. I did this for, for 20 months. I was in Crew of Palanca for 24. Um, and so it was, it was a lot, um, but it was very impactful. And so in addition to organizing tournaments and games and competitions, each and every participant was able to complete athletic trainings more than once a week. Um, and then along those lines, we also set up women's empowerment camps um, through sports. So for our basketball and karate athletes, we would bring in um, the best female Macedonian athletes in those sports and they would lead camps and they would not only teach the young ladies about how to get healthy through sports, how to do um, certain movements correctly, how to build athleticism, but also, um, you know, women's issues, having a positive body image, being comfortable in your own skin, being what it means to be a, a leader, a female leader, a part of a team, um, and also basic personal hygiene, which, which was a need in my community. Um, so taught them about germs and viruses and bacteria and, um, you know, debunk debunking some, some, some cultural traditions regarding, you know, drinking water, things like that. So what, what we think is, is very, you know, very basic knowledge. Um, it was really impactful to, to have this, to have this platform where these ladies could come in and really teach our, um, our young ladies and, and especially, and also, excuse me, our young men in Kriviopalanka who are involved in the sports programs, um, how, to, how to get healthy and how to stay healthy. Yeah, especially like right now in the, like the, the environment that we're, I mean, that we are right now and like everything that we are facing for this past three or more months, uh, I think that's especially like the last part that is so important and, and I mean, I, I could only thank you for, for the things that you've been doing as a Peace Corps volunteer when you were here. Um, it's, we, we mentioned in the beginning, it's been about 
mean, a little bit less than two years that, since you've uh, left Macedonia, but I remember like the day before I think you left, I asked you, what's your favorite food in Macedonia? So along those lines is what do you miss the most in like from Macedonia that you don't have right now in the US? Absolutely, I miss connecting with, with the people. Um, you know, I was, I was really fortunate to have great host families, um, not only in Nagotsuno and training, but at my permanent site in Krivipalanka. Um, these, in reality, um, my host families did not have a whole lot in the grand scheme of things, but they would give anyone the shirt off their back. Um, you know, I, I tell a story every now and then that um, I really believe my, my host mom at my permanent site in Krivipalanka saved my life one time um, when I got really sick. And so... It's, the, it's the, the connections that I was able to make and the relationships I was able to build with the people in my, in my community. So my counterparts were amazing, amazing people. Um, the young people like you guys, you know, the, the kids in my community that I worked with um, doing sports programs or that I, when I would drop into their classes at school um, or even just, you know, reminiscing about, about camp and YMLP and, and um, you know, working with the globe, the young ladies at Glow, uh, I, I miss the the interactions, the the personal connections. Um, along the lines of food, uh, I I really loved Ivar. Um, I would I would put on anything. It's I mean it's like it's like uh, it's like ketchup in the United States. You you put it on everything, and and uh, that's exactly what I did. Um, some of the other foods I miss escape me right now. Um, but also Macedonia has really good wine. Um, I, don't, I don't usually in, indulge too much in that, but I think it's really interesting to see the, the little, the wineries popping up all over Macedonia, the homemade wine. Um, it, it, was, it was really interesting to see as I learned more about Macedonia and traveled around Macedonia, um, you know, the little, the little communities, the little businesses that are, that are really unique. Um, and it was, it was a, just a very interesting experience overall. The different thing about what you said here is uh, the problems that you, you face in Kosovo, but also here, they're basically the same. Maybe, the, of course, the national context is different, but the problem is the same for young people because um, I feel like as young people, we're more international than the sort of like focus on the domestic. So I think, I think it's good that we have cooperation um, on, sort of on behalf of between states, uh, especially among students. The thing I want to ask you is what are your, um, how do you see the future of the Western Balkans? Especially the especially the role of young people in the Western Balkans, but also their role in the process of reconciliation uh, of sort of the ethnic tensions that are still around here. There are two uh, main reasons why I insist in regional cooperation. First is that. When I see a letter of solidarity coming from Skopje, I know it doesn't have any real power, but it makes me feel very, very good. 
whenever I had that, I felt very, very good, no matter from where it comes. Uh, it is very important for activists to see that their struggle is not impossible because there are also other people trying to do the same in other countries and other societies. When people, when activists see this, they easily uh, get inspired and they easily kind of uh, continue with their activism. Otherwise, there is this possibility of desperation and giving up. So I think this is very important for us to know that all governments are behaving like this, not only in the region, but also elsewhere in the world. There are always tendencies to, you know, decrease the quality in education because of different policies, uh, because governments are interested in other topics that bring success more fast in a fast way so they can sell it for the next elections. It's all, it, it is happening all, everywhere in the world. But of course, we have similar problems. And I mean, if, if you see that we are facing similar problems and we are having some success, then you will be more hopeful that you will achieve the same. The other thing is that I think that our region is very, very small. And I guess none of you have been in Pristina ever. Is this correct? Unfortunately, not. Yeah. A of times. Uh, it is very weird for me because it's uh, one hour and a half to go from Pristina to Skopje and vice versa. I go a lot in Skopje since forever. Uh, I go a lot in Tirana. I go a lot in Belgrade. We from Pristina go a lot in all capitals, but I don't see the same happening from other capitals towards Pristina. This is weird because, you know, the, our region is very small. Maybe I understand why people don't come from Belgrade to Pristina because it's six hours uh, road. But from Skopje to Pristina, I don't understand this. Because you can take a bus, it costs only five euros in one direction. So, I, you know, it's there is no reason why not to do it, just out of curiosity. So as if we increase the exchange of students, you will meet more people that are like you and not, uh, and you will lose some prejudices as I did. So when I was for the first time in Belgrade, I thought that people will, will eat me when they realize that I'm from Kosovo. But absolutely the opposite happened they all kind of adored me and started asking me questions and they were very curious about Kosovo and why I, I am there and it always happens. So, or for example, when I realized that in Belgrade there is this uh, building that is called, called Palace Albania, Albania, I couldn't imagine it. You know, I was like, what is happening here? Or there is a, a street called Jerz Kastrioti, you know, I was like, what is happening? Or the main street of Kafanas in Belgrade is called Skadarlia, which is like uh, Škodra, a city in, uh, in Albania. Uh, this was, you know, for Kosovo, it is very unexpected thing. So, yeah, I think uh, as an, when Serbs met me, uh, 
for I, I have to tell you this. When I was first time in Belgrade, I was walking with a group of uh, Kosovo Albanians. We visited the uh, Parliament of Serbia. We went through a non-governmental organization. And uh, this is also interesting to tell. Uh, when we go in Serbia, they take our ID and they give us a paper, as Greece used to do with your passports. So that paper is more valuable than my ID card that is more, you know, like more, how to say, more original, because you can really know if whether the, that is me or not through my ID than uh, with a paper that just says the name. So, but when we went to Serbian parliament to visit, the regulation says that it should be a document with picture. And then we all got our IDs when there is a Republica Kosovo, uh, Kosovo, Republic of Kosovo, you know? And they had to accept that in order for us to visit the Serbian parliament. It was amazing. For example, when I was sitting in one of the rooms uh, and I remember from a documentary that the same room was uh, Milosevic uh, taking the decision over Kosovo. And, you know, I was sitting just there. Milosevic is not there anymore. You know, I am, everybody knows that I'm from Kosovo and I'm there. And that was a great, you know, kind of symbolic victory. And then when we got out, we were walking and there was, and I was kind of looking at the buildings, you know, I, I was very curious about buildings. I, I lost the group. And then uh, an old Serbian lady comes to me and say in Serbian, like, šta su ovi? Uh, odakle su ovi? You know, in Serbian, I was like, mi smo svi iz Kosovo. And she was like, i ti si Šiptar? I was like, yes, I'm Albanian, you know. Da, yes, I'm Albana. She was like, ali ti ne izgledaš kao Šiptar? Because she was expecting me to have the white head or, I don't know, mustache, or I don't know, I look maybe like German to her. And then, even though she was offending me with that shiptar thing, she didn't meant to, you know, she is used to, to say it like that. And, you know, and then my group came because they were like, oh, Ron doesn't know anybody in Belgrade, like, why is he speaking to an old lady? And then when everybody came, she was like, you know, she was totally shocked why we don't look like savages or I don't know. So I think this is very important to describe why we should go to each other's cities. Because you will see that an Albanian and or a Macedonian or anybody is, you know, as you are, faces the same problems, faces the same difficulties. And then you see Vucic, Hashim Tachi, all of those signing agreements, drinking together, eating dinners together, and then you have to realize, you know, the real shit is going there, you know, this is not our shit and we have to deal with this. And I think that uh, if we do this more, uh, politicians will not be able to sell a nationalistic approach in the future. Uh, so that's why I think these two things are very important. Solidarity in one uh, hand, and on the other hand, knowing each other more and our problems will bring us more together. Hey, so for those of you that don't know you, and I mean, I can go on and 
like uh, introduce you, but I would like to hear from you, apart from studying political science, can you tell a little bit more about yourself before we start, uh, start digging in, into the election process in Macedonia? Absolutely. As you mentioned, uh, I study political uh, studies at the Faculty of Law in Skopje. I've been always interested in politics, so even before I uh, enrolled in political studies, I was uh, active in civil society. Uh, during my high school uh, years, I, uh, I represented a, a civil union of students in Tetovo. Moreover, I participated in a couple of uh, NGOs, such as Eco Guerrilla, which is also a movement in Tetovo during the period where the, uh, where, when, where there, when there was enormous uh, pollution in Tetovo and the whole Polar region. Uh, likewise, I've also been uh, a member of uh, Democracy Lab, it's, uh, an association that uh, it's completely, completely deals with uh, political issues and digital tools in democracy. Um, I've also been uh, alumni of uh, Benjamin Franklin Institute in the United States in 2016 which uh, aims to enhance the role and the uh, foster relations between the United States and Europe. Likewise, I've participated in programs in Japan, and last year also in Russia. So um, my political perspective doesn't involve only one side. I try to look at all sides and have a better understanding, of course, uh, with, with the values that we uphold in our country, uh, as, such as democracy and rule of law, which are the uh, paramount, um, paramount values that we try to achieve and hold strong. Yeah, and, and that's what you said at the end. That's one of the reasons why specifically I asked you to uh, kind of talk to us and, and just briefly discuss what has happened in, uh, in Macedonia over the past few weeks and months. Uh, therefore, uh, for those of you that are listening right now and are not uh, really into what's happening in Macedonia. We just had um, elections in time of Corona, which was uh, an interesting experience in my opinion, but we had parliamentary elections where uh, 120 members of the parliament were elected. We still don't have the official results, but from the looks of things, we do have unofficial resol results, which will uh, most likely com be confirmed. And, uh, and that's why we're going to talk a little bit more about that towards the end of the episode. Uh, but before we start uh, kind of discussing the electoral process, the elections, and, and kind of give our predictions on what's next, uh, on what's next for the country, I wanted to briefly give a, a little background on the situation in Macedonia. In 2016, Macedonia um, had uh, our last parliamentary elections, where uh, after 10 or 11 years of uh, rule, uh, the conservative uh, party uh, who was in power for, for this period of time, Vomero Dupomane, was uh, lost the elections, uh, or rather won most votes, but was unable to form a government uh, and the Social Democratic Party in Macedonia and Zoran Zaev were able to form a coalition with uh, the Democratic Union of Integration. If is that the correct translation? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So they form a government, DUI, uh, which is pretty funny when you say it in English. 
uh, stayed in power uh, because they were together with Vomero uh, most of the time. Uh, but yes, in the past three years, we've had a change of government and uh, with a pretty unstable, pretty unstable government because there wasn't much, uh, there wasn't a big difference uh, in the number of uh, MPs that coalition in the opposition had and, and the coalition in the government had. Now, what happens, uh, what happens with that government? Well, the two major things uh, that were established or, or achieved during these past three years is the, the joining, uh, Macedonia joining NATO under a new constitutional name, North Macedonia, which was changed uh, about a year ago. Uh, and uh, then we, it looks like we're getting, uh, we're getting a day to start uh, our negotiation with the European Union. Uh, but because we did not get a date uh, about, I was, was it like se seven or eight months ago? That was in October, October 2019. October. Yeah, so yes. we did not have a date. Uh, and that's why the Prime Minister, Zaev, decided to, uh, decided to call for uh, snap elections. Snap elections, thank you. Yeah. yeah. So the Prime Minister Zayev decides to call for snap elections, which were originally supposed to happen in April of uh, 2020, but because of the corona, they were pushed and we had uh, COVID-19 uh, COVID elections, uh, which were done on a Wednesday, which never happens in Macedonia. That was interesting as well, because every election is uh, during the weekend. But yeah, so why did we need elections? What, did, what are your thoughts there? Uh, I would say that from the very beginning of this coalition between the Social Democratic Party, Sadasana and Kubi, the Albanian uh, Democratic Union for Integration, uh, the coalition was not natural. Kubi uh, was in power for 10 years with, uh, almost 10 years with Boro, uh, the Conservative Party in Macedonia, and they kind of felt naturally to continue their coalition since Vomero had uh, two more MPs in 2016. They had 51 compared to Sadasama, the former opposition with 49 MPs. And Dewey felt natural to form a coalition which they in total would gain 61 MPs, uh, necessary votes to form a uh, government coalition. Uh, but nevertheless, I think there was pressure from the uh, external factors, from the international community, uh, that uh, Grevsky needed to step, uh, step back because uh, he was involved, he was the main perpetrator of the whole crisis that began in 2014. So there was no chance for a person that uh, needed to face uh, justice to be one more time prime minister. Uh, Nevertheless, I think the coalition started uh, in, in a very, uh, in very good, good spirit, I'd say. But nevertheless, I think the, uh, the coalition was impacted by the decision of uh, French President Macron in, in last year in October, which kind of, kind of uh, prevented Macedonia to start the accession talks, which are nothing in finishing it, that's just the beginning of a process. It's very symbolic, like without fulfilling any chapters for accession with the European Union. But nevertheless, 
uh, internal politics within the European Union affected, Mas affected Macedonia, which uh, uh, had the baron of a very large political sacrifice with the constitutional name. So it was a huge sacrifice done by this, go by this government uh, regarding the, uh, the uh, bilateral relations with Greece. So to forever look back this issue and look forward uh, in joining NATO and EU. So uh, I think maybe the coalition didn't, of course, no, nobody was aware, no one was aware of the fact that there will be a huge pandemic in the whole world. So by their estimates, they thought that uh, if Macedonia gets into NATO by the beginning of 2020, we'll have good chances, even though they get the EU accession talks. Nevertheless, they have a uh, good baggage with the idea of uh, uh, getting into NATO. So they thought that that might, that might be a huge victory for them in uh, snapping elections, but nevertheless, things all got complicated in that period. Even though in, uh, on 24th of March 2020, Macedonia new rules, but the accession talks, the beginning of accession talks. So the, for the government, that was a huge victory. But when you look at the coalition inside, there were many problems that never got resolved regarding the public prosecution, uh, regarding the uh, immunity of former, former Vumro MPs. I would like to specif specifically mention the, uh, uh, former, the former, former chairman of the parliament, uh, Trajanovsky which uh, in kind of maybe an unofficial uh, agreement between Dewey and Bumrah, he wasn't prosecuted, his immunity wasn't taken by the parliament. So this kind of friction always existed between the government. So, and moreover, so the summer in 2016 had a huge campaign against Dewey. They promised that they will send the whole government in opposition, all the criminals, they'll send all the corrupted officials and held all of them accountable. How they, they, they envisaged to do this was by, uh, by uh, reforming justice, which the honest failed completely in this government. So the main, the main uh, aim of this government, the main goal, the cardinal goal of this government completely failed, which is uh, delivering justice, which, never, which was never delivered. What's your comment on, like, we were talking about this before with Dimitar and, and some other people here, but like, it looks like, apart from Corona and, and the economic crisis, one thing that Trump doesn't have this year, or like compared to 2016, is the, the ability to hit Biden where, where he needs to hit, it, hit him. Like with Hillary, Trump's messaging was corruption, corruption, and more corruption. And, mm -hmm. and with Biden, it looks like it's, oh, he's socialist. He's, he's controlled by the Marxists. He's controlled by, I don't know. That's his, like, I mean, we laughed at this the other day on our uh, Macedonian podcast. It was like, Donald Trump really said that Joe Biden is further to the left than Bernie Sanders ever, ever dreamed of going so mm -hmm. it's like 
do you think like the, the, the strategy of Trump this year is totally off or is he waiting for those corruption attacks in Ukraine and, and all of that that would, I mean, you would think that there would have been like number, like day one, as soon as Democrats are announced or as soon as Bernie Sanders drops out, Trump must have had people to tell him like you gotta attack Biden on corruption, not on how left he is not. That's that's a good point, but I also think like it kind of goes back to creating a like creating an audience, right? Um, and kind of creating this idea of choice. Like, yeah, I mean, like all four of us are very well informed on Biden's legacy and what he stands for. But most people are voting based on what they see on CNN or Fox News, right? And Trump is using this, uh, you know, context of uprising, this context of economic uncertainty as a way to look, uh, as a way to um, tell his supporters, like your other choice is somebody who is in cahoots with radicals that smash the CVS windows or something like that, you know? Um, he's creating a reality that's not, you know, truly representative. So in some ways that is exactly what uh, you would expect Trump to do. Um, uh, yeah, and there are plenty of like moderate Republicans and people that are kind of on the fence, uh, either not voting or I actually know a few people that have voted for Trump, not because they're hardcore conservative and because they're racist or it's because they like, I don't like, uh, like Democrats, you know, like they're, they're, they're too far left. And, you know, that's a, I know that's a mind fuck, but like, that's what they're fed, you know? <laughs> and so when they're fed that, um, Trump is like speaking to that audience and kind of climbing that pump. So I don't think it's a totally off strategy. The New York Times will tell you that the man's losing his mind. And I, I can't speak for that. I'm not, I'm not in the White House. Uh, if I was, I would be all over the news leaking things. Um, but uh, I... I, th I, th I think it's pretty calculated. Yeah, it, it is calculated, but what do you think? Uh, does that argument will touch a lot of people who can change the election? Or there are just a couple of moderate Republicans that will uh, listen to that idea? Well, you know, there's a lot of people that don't like the, um, don't like the uprising. You know, there's a lot of people in the suburbs of America, mostly white people, that, you know, they're not racist, you know, but they are, but they don't like the idea of seeing police cars burn. They don't like the idea of seeing looting or garbage. And they also see uh, a lot of decontextualized videos and images of like, this is what the protesters in Portland left, uh, you know, after they, you know, scuffled with the police and they care about the environment. That does matter to people because that's what they're seeing. Um, and so I think it could be more effective than, than you might think. Um, 
you know, like take for example, like, um, you know, people that live in my parents' neighborhood, you know, they're like middle to upper middle class white people that are, you know, in their 60s. Uh, do you think they relate to like Black Lives Matter protesters? Not really, right? And um, that, that's not going to say that they're all going to vote for Trump. A lot of them will probably vote for Biden. But it will start that conversation going. And I don't know, it's, it's hard to say. I think, I, I think pre predicting the election is an impossible task. And it's a mistake that people have made. But like I said before, I don't think it's a, uh, I don't think it's a, a random political strategy. I think it's basically a, a strategy that, that goes through almost every society mm -hmm. of the 21st century, uh, where we have like the class that should be uh, historically leftist or mm -hmm. by definition leftist, like the working class, uh, in America as well, I think this is a problem because maybe not with uh, racial minorities, but definitely with uh, white lower class, mm -hmm. uh, where Trump serves uh, what they want to hear. Yeah, he serves nationalism. Nationalism. He serves um, this identity uh, propaganda and so on. So it's basically what they want to hear, no matter what their circumstances are. They don't really give a flying fuck about whether they will get richer right now. It's like, basically, I want to live in a strong country because again, we come to the moment of education mm -hmm. and how it's all connected to down to that. Yeah, uh, I agree. And uh, if you talk to a lot of people that were uh, supportive of Trump in 2016, a lot of those folks were, were also Bernie supporters. And the main reason why is not because of the social issues, was because like both Bernie and Trump were opposed to NAFTA and the TPP. And um, you know that's an interesting kind of Venn diagram that I think people that liberals intentionally misread, but leftists kind of see through that, and they see how Trump and this sort of populist Republican narrative that's taken over the party. Uh, you know, uh, really kind of co-ops like working class people um, in all the wrong ways, but they do it. Okay, so yeah, Mark just graduated from Arizona State University. He's a dear friend of mine. We did a two months internship last summer uh, with Young Life and we traveled a lot we talked a lot uh mainly politics and religion because uh we kind of share that we we don't agree about most of the things uh, when we talk about this <laughs> but at the end of the day we kind of uh patch things up and, and have fun and uh yeah i want to like i mean I, I remember last year we were in france at the end of our internship and i was like I got to have you on my podcast that wasn't really happening last year. So now when you're right, I remember. Yeah. So now when I That's have crazy. the podcast, uh, I'm really glad to have you Mark. And I'll just say, like, give you the opening word is like, just let us know who you are. What are you about? Uh, and those things now we can move on and 
start asking you some questions that I'm sure everyone will okay. like to hear. Well, first off, dude, uh, proud of you for starting the podcast. I know I had a couple ideas last summer that I just kind of let sit in my brain. So glad to see you're actually moving on it. Yeah, I remember that was almost a year ago, a little, little over. You're talking about starting this whole thing and you're actually doing it. So that's sweet. Here I am. Um, what do you want to know? You know, say about me, like, I'm Mark Cordero from uh, the United States, obviously. Born in Utah, moved around a lot as a kid. I think I moved like four or five different places, but like eight times. Lived in Mexico for a bit, as you had said. I was in Europe last year, but I did the study abroad before that. So lived in Spain for four months. Hit 17 countries. I like to think that I'm somewhat well-traveled, a little well-cultured. Um, but definitely still have a, uh, I would say, American philosophy in my way of thinking. Whatever that would entail. You know, a little more individualistic, uh, charitable, um, but not through use of force type of deal. Uh, but what kind of thing are you looking for in terms of how I describe myself? Like politically? I, mean, I, I think like, I think we're going to get to politically and people will find that out on their own as we go through. Yeah, I probably. Think that, that's pretty, pretty, like that's enough for, for the start. I mean, I told you before we start recording, I know we made a lot of fun of you uh, last summer about this. Uh, Cause I don't think there was like, a couple days go by that you don't know, mention a certain trip of yours, especially in the Balkans. It, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because like we're from Macedonia, and Macedonia is not that far. Uh, Macedonia is in the Balkans, and also not that far from uh, Bosnia. So yeah. I know you have a great story to tell, and I think starting this podcast oh, on a positive yeah. and funny note would be would be good. <laughs> Sure, man. <laughs> so I guess to explain why it came up so frequently is, as you know, obviously, I was your replacement for the first week as video intern and then supposed to be doing stuff later. And it would come up of like, I don't have a laptop to use and people would ask me, why don't you a laptop or what's your backpack or what do you mean? And so I have to explain to them, well, I got robbed in Bosnia, you know, and you and especially Caitlin and Nathan started making fun of me, <laughs> coughing every time I uh, brought this up. But it's because so much of what I had was taken. Yeah, so I had gone to Budapest initially on a two-day trip, what I thought was a two-day trip. Um, and I packed a laptop thinking I was going to apply for something or do some sort of work. I think I thought I was going to study. I didn't, but I brought my laptop along. You know, I brought like a couple pairs of clothes, a little few changes, a couple pairs of jeans, another pair of shoes, thank God. Um, my backpack, camel back, you know, headphones, everything. I was like, two days, living luxury. Well. I'm there and another friend of mine from Arizona State actually was in Europe leaving Budapest the day before I got there. And she was like, if you want to come to Croatia, come along. And I was like, sure. And so my two days turns to a week. And then I was like, well, why would I go back? All my friends are leaving. And so that turned into two weeks. And so at this point I was pretty tired. You know, I'd had two weeks of studying for finals, a week of travel, and I wasn't used to such prolonged periods yet. And so I was like, look, I need to go chill out. Let's find a place we can just hang for a couple of days. And she had mentioned Mostar. So we go to Mostar, Bosnia, or I guess Herzegovina properly. Beautiful place. The Chivapi, magnifique. Beautiful, honestly, beautiful city. Um, so the first day we're there, you know, we check into the, the flat, our Airbnb, walking around the city, get our Chivapi, get some Mostarko beer, camped out by the river, come back that night. Things are going well. The next day we think, let's just chill out, hang out in the room, no problem. That lasts for like two hours. We get bored of our minds, go back, get some more beers, come back, and all of a sudden our bags are gone, right? 
And so we walk in and my friend Jolie says, Hey, did you move my bags? I was like, no, what do you mean that I move your bags? Like I've been here with you. And she's like, well, they're not my room. And so I go into my room and I was like, yo, my backpack's gone too. And start walking around the apartment and realize our bags are gone. Not only that, like they took a couple pairs of my underwear, they took like half my shirts. They left my towel, which Nathan later lost, RIP Nathan. Um, they would like literally took so much. It took a devotional of mine, but they left some things we couldn't tell at first. And it ended up being this whole ordeal where the guy came up, he called the police, he called his parents, he's freaking out, like how they break in, no sign of forced entry. You know, my parents, other people thought, well, maybe it was him. And I was like, he called the cops on his own apartment. I really doubt it was him, you know? Um, and so the next day, I don't even know if I had phone service. We make our way to Sarajevo on a bus. We have no passports. She has no idea, ID. I have a paper bag, maybe, what, what would you call it? Uh, 0.3 meters long. Is that fair? <laughs> 0.25. It was small. It was like 25 meters wide. You know, like there's a little paper bag of everything that I own. And we're going to this bus to Sarajevo, get into town and it starts storming, like just pouring rain on us. Get into the past, like the embassy, U.S. embassy. And they said they shipped on the machine, but tomorrow, the next day is a holiday. So you better go find a place now to get your photos. And we sneak into this photo place like five minutes before it closes. Guy speaks very little English. I'm just like, hey, I have five euros and like a couple Bosnian marks is enough. And he just kind of looked at us, saw our situation. It's like, right, sure, you know, get your photos. And so we just hung out in Sarajevo for a couple of days. Just walked around, got more Chavapi in Old Town Sarajevo. The mountains between there was beautiful. And then finally, we're able to get our passports. And just because my luck couldn't get any worse, as we're going into Serbia to try to fly to Paris, I get pulled off the bus by Serbian Border Patrol. And I asked him, I was like, okay, I'm just curious, is there something wrong with my passport? And he says, I don't know. We'll see. It's like, thanks. That's, that's wonderful. And after like 30 minutes of having him search through my very meager belongings. Dude, no, really. And I was just like, okay, I guess after looking through all of my stuff. And I mean, by all, I mean, I have like three pairs of shorts, a book, a pair of shoes I'm wearing and a couple other items he lets me go. And I was like, I'm just curious, why was they searched? And he says, first time in Serbia, we search you. Next time, maybe not. It's like, Kavala, I'll see you later. And from then on, it was pretty smooth sailing, but it was just this whole week of chaos. Yeah, I, I remember. Fun. No, I, I remember that every border we crossed that summer and we crossed a lot oh of borders. God. My passport. <laughs> We would pray that we don't get stopped because of Mark's passport. And Mark, why was, why so, was that? Because it looked fake and it was janky. It, it was literally like this thin as opposed to a regular passport. It had like two pages on it. They had put a sticker on the inside that had my information. So it looked fake too. And I always kept it in my pocket because I'd gotten robbed the first time. So it just looked progressively uglier as summer went on. It was broken. There was no electronics in it. Man, I got stopped at the uh, Slovenian airport trying to leave Ljubljana for like 25 minutes. And uh, it was definitely the case that I don't think I was able to get through a border checkpoint easily until I had at least like eight stamps in that thing. Yeah. The, the the best sensation was coming back home in August, like, like last year, going to customs in the United States, handing in my passport, and he just said, passport gets stolen. And I said, 
yep (laughs) welcome home i was like oh my god (laughs) oh man i kept that thing on me for like a month afterward that's that that's actually quite that's actually quite a story and then it was yeah yeah, and that was the weirdest part is i hadn't even started going to the balkans yet i was i was halfway through my summer oh Yeah, I mean, you you were definitely here during like a most interesting of times for mm. for the country, just mm. transformation. Mm. But like, yep. but like c- c- coming back, coming back to the contemporary. Yeah. Uh, how do you, you know? How how do you how do you feel about the recent veto that Bulgaria put put upon Macedonia in terms of like the EU integration, but also uh, just. Just, just like the demands of uh, that they that they voiced on changing the on changing the using the using some formulation of the language and mm, I forget mm, the other ones. Yeah. Mm, mm. Um, very very disappointed. You know, I think that Mace- North Macedonia has taken so many important and in some ways really painful steps. You know which some of which can really be debated how necessary was this or that, but they did it, right? Because I think North Macedonia as a community was really committed to being a part of Europe, you know, and to rejoining the continent politically, economically, socially, and claiming their place, you know, as part of this like prosperous European future. And they've made a lot of changes within the country, I think, to try to really demonstrate that we're serious about this, we're serious about becoming an EU member, we're serious about adopting these reforms and you know, transforming the way we do business and politics here in this country. Um, at least many people were. And I think European history shows that the kind of demands Bulgaria is making on North Macedonia is really, really dangerous, you know? Um, I mean, you literally only have to look you know, back 20 years ago to see the breakup of Yugoslavia echoing the exact same parallels, right? And we all know the kind of violence that that resulted in, particularly for Bosnia, right? These disagreements over who and what are we as a people and who has the right to decide that and who has the right to then rewrite memory of who we are, you know, moving forward. The kind of unilateral approach that the folks in power in Yugoslavia took, particularly in Belgrade, did result in it was a complex situation, but that was, I think, for me, one major factor in like why you saw so much violence break out. Um, and furthermore, as a historian, it's so frustrating because it's such a clear and obvious misuse of the discipline of history, right? Um, and, you know, I think that the letter released by the group of Balkan historians, there's been two, but the more recent one you know, really nailed this on the head. And um, I actually have it pulled up if I can find it. But, um, you know, what they basically said was, you know, listen, all identities are constructions and all identities are complex and they have to be viewed through several different lenses and to insist that only one quote truth and one viewpoint be held up as official is not only historically inaccurate and ahistorical, but it does have really dangerous connotations, particularly in the Balkans, where intercommunal relationships can be really fragile, right? And it's important for people to be respected and to feel like that what they bring to the table is being acknowledged. So 
um, you know, I was actually really, really happy with the um, letter that was released. Actually, I have it right here. Um, so um, here we go. However, modern approaches in human and social science conceptualize all nations as constructed and even literally, quote unquote, artificial and national histories as spiritual constructs as one of many ways one could comprehend the past. It is also worrying that through negotiations, the two countries attempt to seek a consensus on one and only one historical truth. Modern historiography has long accepted the existence of different interpretations as a result of different perspectives. We live in pluralistic societies and work in an academic environment that accepts pluralism of interpretations, including interpretations of the past as something normal. So, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge that Macedonia and Bulgaria have a long shared history. Like no one's not trying to argue that. Um, but I think for Bulgaria to attempt to rewrite history and put forth this only one narrative, particularly a narrative that says you must essentially abolish your independent identity and abolish your distinctiveness because that is quote unquote a lie. Um, I think that's really egregious and wrong, um, you know, and uh, it is very, very frustrating. I remember when I was in Skopje the first time and I made my first trip to Sofia, um, I told people, you know, I'm living in Macedonia. I was just Macedonia at the time and, um, you know, I'm working there. And uh, literally the first thing I was told was, oh, ha, ha, you mean Western Bulgaria. And it was kind of like an eye roll moment of, okay, you know, like that's whatever. But um, it's, it's interesting. I, for me, the main takeaway for observers should be that history matters and how you teach history matters because these are the type of like geopolitical situations with real ramifications, particularly for the young people in Macedonia that arise when you allow state actors to kind of write a state agenda into the history textbooks instead of helping students think critically and in a complex way about history. So it's my very long-winded reaction. Um, but yeah, no, honestly, I would seek to go back to the drawing table, just the motivations that are being brought in with this whole, the fact, the very fact that there's a commission to make a final decision on who Gotze Delchev is, like that's a historical, you know what I mean? Like that's, that there's, there's no way to make a final decision, you know, like, and this is it, right? Like there's no way to do that. He himself had a very complex identity. He lived at a time in which identities, national identities as we know them today didn't quite exist, right? They were kind of being formed at that point. And it's a huge issue in history to backwards project current ideas and understandings of the world onto a previous generation or a previous period, because that leads to a complete misinterpretation, so. How do you see this, this situation potentially unraveling? Like, what mm. are some possible scenarios for mm. generally this question? Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think in general, this was the big issue with some, that some folks on the EU side had as they were seeking to welcome in different, um, Balkan communities into the EU, particularly with an idea of who was currently in power as they were doing that, because this issue was a little bit anticipated, you know, that the fact that as different states were incorporated and accepted, these long-standing kind of bad blood with a member that wasn't accepted yet would then inform the way that the state who got in first would try to warp the process for the incoming 
you know, members, right? You know, that was the whole issue with like, you know, Croatia, Bosnia and Serbia, right? That's what everybody was anticipating, you know, depending on who gets in first, they're going to make it harder for the other ones or impose these like, you know, crazy conditions and, you know, things that really don't have anything to do with like economic indexes or like transparency of, you know, civic processes, right? I mean, abolishing your identity should not be a like, you know, condition of EU membership, right? That, that's nuts. So, um, I think it sets a really bad precedent, right? Because you have an you know, ongoing issue, frankly, still with Kosovo, right? And is this going to give Serbia license if they happen to get in first of making some sort of similar demand on Kosovo, right? I mean, you look at both like, you know, Bosnia, right? Are both Croatia and Serbia then going to have license to make some sort of similar demand on Bosnia, you know? Um, it's just, or like, you know, it, what about like Kosovo and Albania? Like once again, very long shared history, right? Peoples that have a long shared identity uh, with nuances and complexities in each community. What, what's gonna happen there? So I think it, it from the EU, EU perspective, it sets a really bad precedent for the future of the EU accession process. If the EU does not take a strong leadership stance and pushing back against Bulgaria and saying, this is not, this is not good. This is, this is not acceptable. You can't bully a you know prospective applicant like this um uh, within north macedonia I, I i think that like it it's for me i care most about young people in macedonia and i feel like this is discouraging you know young people want to stay in their home and they want to use their skills to contribute to making macedonia prosperous right like yes there are great opportunities all over the world all over the continent but i don't think that we should be requiring young people to uproot themselves and place themselves in a place where you know, they're in a completely foreign environment just to realize their talents. You know what I mean? Macedonia has so much process, um, promise and the country itself has the potential to be a very wealthy country. You know, it sits at the nexus of transportation between, you know, Anatolia and the Middle East with Europe. You know, it has, it's rich in mineral resources. It's obviously um, an agricultural hub, you know, and it could be, a country that is very successful economically with a high, highly educated people. Um, so for me, I see this as like yet another way in which young people can be discouraged um, in North Macedonia and their futures, right? Of being able to, you know, realize great careers. Um, it just gets more difficult to see that happening sooner, you know? Um, I feel like unfortunately this could facilitate the brain drain situation. Um, that's been an ongoing issue for North Macedonia. So, yeah. We just finished recording our episode, which was about an hour and a half long. And uh, well, guess what? Pennsylvania has just been called. So I think, I mean, we officially have Joe Biden uh, as a president-elect and uh, Kamala Harris as vice president-elect. Man, oh I guess it's all sweet right here. For all the nation's divisions, Biden is on track to win a solid, even decisive election. <laughs> I don't know about decisive. <laughs> Hold your tongue, Adam Nagorny. <laughs> oh my God. I, I would my not favorite call that trick. a decisive win. No. My favorite tweet, and I'm going to share with you, is Trump. Oh, yes. The tweet that yes. we shared during the episode. 
I won this election by a lot, Trump saying an hour ago, and then uh, the Gravel Institute, which is uh, pretty pretty good uh, lefty uh, presence on social media, at least, Hell yeah. uh, has quoted it, sad, all caps, expo- exclamation point. Um, okay, I think... It, we 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 had to record this. We're not gonna talk any further, but we just had to say that officially you can hear it from us as well. If you if somehow you live under a rock and you do not just got the same news that we got that Biden has officially been uh, called as the winner as a projected winner of the 2020 presidential election. I just want to say for an encore. Bye, loser.